Welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. It is our intention to continue offering these audio recordings free of charge. However, if you would like to donate to support our cause and keeping our facility open in Nashville, you can do so via the Venmo app by sending a donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can find us online at our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, and click the Donate tab. So like I said, I want to kick it old school and talk about one of my favorite topics, which is breaking the addiction to the thinking mind. And what happens when we get lost in thought? Where do we go and what happens to us in those moments? Uh, The inspiration for today's talk comes from Buddha Dasa, who is a mid-20th century Buddhist scholar and philosopher and reformer of Buddhism in Thailand. It's a real simple quote. He says, how does the modern world look to the meditation master? And he says, lost in thought, lost in thought. And the fact of the matter is, I think that for myself, the majority of my day is spent wandering around in my head, disconnected from the present experience, disembodied. A lot of times I find myself, I wake up to moments of being in the past or lost in the future or lost in fantasy or self-obsession. And we'll talk about this later. This isn't our fault. I think that one of the things I'm grateful for about having a sangha and a community of other contemplatives is that we all kind of have to, at some point, develop some thick skin for this insult that is our mind. We have to have a little bit of healthy respect for the fact that the mind has a mind of its own and its job is to think. And so when we get lost in thought, we have to kind of start from this place of humility, you know, that it's uh, not so easy to be present, actually. If it was, we wouldn't have to spend all of this time cultivating it. We wouldn't have to spend all of this time uh, in this discipline of mindfulness practice. But the fact of the matter is that we do spend the majority of our time wandering wandering around in our heads. And another thing that we'll talk about later is the power of attention. You know, and the Buddha really taught this as a practice of training the attention to be more observant of our thoughts, to be more careful with how we attend to our thoughts, and to be more discerning of what the mind is doing in each moment. He calls this Yoniso Manasikara, careful attention. So the Buddha taught a practice, a way to help us to step out of the obsessive thoughts, the ruminating discursive thoughts, and to find a way to learn through observing the thoughts, the nature of them, the impermanent and personal nature of the thinking mind. And so... The endless wandering mind is what the Buddha refers to as the monkey mind. And I'd always heard this in kind of the Zen Buddhist world is uh, the mind being referred to as the monkey mind. And I got really interested in seeing if there was any ancient Buddhist texts that were related to this uh, theme of monkey mind. And so I looked through and, and found a sutta called the Makata Sutta, which is in the Samyutta Nikaya number 47, where the Buddha explicitly describes the mind as a monkey mind. And he says that there are two types of monkeys. There are the trained monkeys and the untrained monkeys, or I think he calls them the foolish monkeys and the wise monkeys. 
And the Buddha often does this. He calls people without mindfulness perpetual wanderers, people that are kind of just wandering around in their thought world and getting lost in thought. But the trained monkey is a monkey nonetheless, but it's a monkey that's not foolish, that's careful in attending to thoughts, that doesn't just get lost in them. And so he says this, he says, there are in the Himalayas, the king of mountains, level stretches of land delightful where both monkeys and human beings wander. In such spots, hunters will set tar traps in the monkey's tracks in order to catch some of them. Those monkeys who are not foolish or careless by nature, those with mindfulness, when they see the tar trap, they avoid it from the f- afar. But any monkey who is foolish and careless by nature, those without mindfulness, comes up to the tar trap and grabs it with its paw. They get stuck there thinking, well, I'll free my paw. So they grab it with their other paw and they get stuck there thinking, I'll free both of my paws, so they grab it with their foot and they get stuck there, thinking, I'll free both of my paws and my foot, they grab it with their other foot and they get stuck there, thinking, I'll free both my paws and my feet as well, so they grab it with their mouth and they get stuck there. So the monkey is now snared in five ways, lies there whimpering, having fallen on misfortune, fallen on ruin, a prey to whatever the hunter wants to do with them. Then the hunter, without releasing the monkey, skewers them right there, picks them up, and goes off as the hunter likes. So it's a little bit of a a morbid story, uh, as the Buddha does sometimes. But we're talking about suffering and happiness. So what is the hunter? The hunter is suffering. The hunter comes to you when you get lost in thought, thinking, I'll free myself from this thought with another thought. I'll free myself from that thought with another thought. And we get caught in this swinging, this endless wandering through our thoughts. And we have to be realistic about the power of the thinking mind and the potential dangers it poses to our happiness. Like I said earlier, we have to have a healthy respect for it. So I've heard it said, I don't know if it's true, but it's estimated that we have between 50 to 70,000 discrete thoughts in one 24-hour period of time. 50 to 70,000. Even if we have 1,000 discrete thoughts in a 24-hour period of time, that's a lot of thoughts. And so... That's the frequency of thoughts, but we also really want to look at the potency of thoughts. More than how often thoughts occur, how much does each thought affect us as it happens throughout the day? Does that make sense? When we get lost in a thought, it affects us emotionally. It affects our behaviors. It affects how we react to people, places, and things in our life. And what we think about has a major influence on us. There are two Harvard psychologists named Gilbert and Killingsworth that did a famous study called The Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. And what they found is that our thoughts, when they were able to track them, when your mind is wandering, they found that most of the time you're going to get caught up in obsession, worry, or some stress. And I think in neuroscience, they call this the negative attention bias, right? It's the tendency of the mind is to survive and to protect us from danger and threat. So what occupies our thoughts most of the time? Potential dangers and threat in the past, in the future, 
some fantasy, some stories about ourselves. They center around stressful things. Here's what Daniel Goldman said about this study. The wandering mind is an unhappy mind. He said that in the study, on average, people's moods were generally skewed to the unpleasant while their minds wandered. Even thoughts that had seemingly neutral content were shaded with negative emotional tones. Mind wandering itself seemed to be the cause of unhappiness some or much of the time. Mind wandering tends to center on ourself and our preoccupations. All of the many things that I have to do today, the wrong thing that I said to that person, what I should have said instead, and so on. While the mind sometimes wanders to pleasant thoughts or fantasies, it more often seems to gravitate to rumination and worry. So we have 50 to 70,000 discrete thoughts a day, and these thoughts tend to be focused on stressful things. And if we pay attention, we can start to see how we get lost, not just in the thoughts, but in the emotionality of the thought. I'll give you some examples. A moment of planning, you're driving down the road, you're thinking about things that you have to do at work next week or a vacation or a trip that you have planned, although we're probably doing none of those things right now. <laughs> uh, maybe our planning minds are a little bit more chill during COVID. Um, but a seemingly harmless moment of planning quickly turns into what? It turns into anticipation. We lean into the future. And we start to become restless and we start to worry a lot of the times. And ultimately, this feeds and feels anxiety. I won't say that our thoughts cause anxiety, but they definitely gather evidence for it. So a seemingly neutral moment of planning can quickly pick up momentum and turn into this anxious, fearful story of the uncertain future. Right? And uh, Mark Twain said, the worst moments in my life never came true. So much of the shit that we obsess and worry about doesn't even end up happening anyway. I call it lost time, right? Lost time. So the future is the emotionality of anxiety. We get caught in the anticipation. And you'll even notice when you meditate, sometimes letting go of a thought telling the mind gently, not right now, and choosing to set the thought down is actually hard to do. It's fearful to let go of a thought sometimes. So this is part of the practice is that letting go means that we have to abandon some of the certainty that the mind is trying to manufacture for us. We have to let go of the uh, obsessive future and trying to prepare and plan and predict it and to let go into the uncertain present of, of the moment. But we actually find that when we can do this, when we can let go into the uncertain present, because we don't know what's coming next or what's going to happen a day from now, we actually are more attentive to the conditions of the moment. We can respond more wisely and skillfully and tend to be better prepared for those moments as they come. So the emotionality of thought, we also get caught in past thought, right? What starts as a harmless moment of reflection or a nostalgic memory that the mind is, is carrying out can quickly turn into a longing for a time that once was, or it can turn into a regret or feed depression. This coulda, shoulda, woulda, what I coulda done or shoulda done or wish I woulda done. 
or what parts of my life I've lost or where I went wrong. Do you notice any of these? <laughs> right? We just trip about shit all the time. And that's, I guess, what I'm trying to say at the beginning of the Dharma talk here is just that we have to have a healthy respect. We trip. We endlessly go on trips in the mind and the trips are horrifying and tragic. And without mindfulness present, we kind of fall victim to the stories that the mind is telling. We don't have active awareness whereby we can challenge the stories. Uh, Third example is we get lost in fantasy quite a bit. And again, these thoughts in and of themselves aren't the problem. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But when we get hijacked by fantasy, it means that we often fall into longing for something that we don't have. A lot of our fantasy is tinged with this grasping and craving for something other than the present moment. And we don't notice it because fantasy we think is positive or pleasant. It's goal-oriented. You know, oh, I'd love to move to Spain and get a Spanish partner and wouldn't that be sexy and romantic, right? But then all of a sudden, what are we doing? Fuck, my life sucks. I don't, I'm single, I ain't got shit, you know, it's cold here. This is my mind at least, right? So fantasy quickly turns into dissatisfaction. That's what I mean by the emotionality of thought. Future, anxiety, past, depression, fantasy, dissatisfaction. These are just generalizations. The third, of course, is, or sorry, fourth is our self-centeredness. And when I say self-centeredness, we think of self-centeredness as like this egoic narcissism and, um, you know, like self-importance, like thinking of oneself as this kind of like grandiose sense of self. But the Buddha is kind of taking it a step deeper than that. He's saying, don't look at the grandiosity of self as much as this idea of I am better than, I am less than, I am equal to. This idea of comparing oneself to others. Does that make sense? So this is what I mean by self-centeredness is this tendency we have to always be self-referential. Everything that we experience is in relationship to this person I call me. And so we walk around in endless criticism and insecurity and comparison and jealousy and shame and envy and all of these, uh, the emotionality of self. So just to review three things, we have a lot of thoughts throughout a day. The thoughts tend to get involved in unpleasant things and the unpleasant things add to an emotionality of the present moment. They cause anxiety and depression and dissatisfaction and insecurity. So I want to look at a couple other characteristics of thoughts because I'm a, I'm a big fan of kind of identifying the behavior of a thought. Uh, I find that it's helpful if you want to escape from some of these habits to have some names for them. So the first characteristic of obsessive thoughts is uh, proliferating thoughts, proliferation. And proliferation in... Um, the Buddhist sense is called papancha. Papancha is the Pali Sanskrit word for it. And I love these ancient words for things because they're usually more true to what the experience is. You know, some psychologist came around at some point and was like, we call this proliferation. Well, what the fuck does that mean? Papancha is a great word. It's like an onomatopoeia. What papancha means is actually spreading out. It's like popcorn. 
So when your mind is in the story-making mode, I call it the lawyer mind, when your mind is gathering evidence for an emotion that you're having. I'll give an example of this. A big one for me is imposter syndrome, right? Especially early on in my uh, recovery when I went back to school, you know, I was a felon and I had gotten kicked out of three schools. I felt like they did not know who they let into this college. I was like, I felt like I got away with it. <laughs> I was like snuck in the back door. So I had this imposter syndrome. I used to build these stories in my head about uh, my teachers confronting me about how I didn't really know what they were teaching. So I would write my paper and I would just try to make sure that any argument they had that would prove that I was incompetent, I could just take care of before they ever got to it. So I would spend 10 hours writing a two-page paper because I'm obsessing about making this story about how incompetent I am and feeling like I needed to prove myself, right? So do you ever defend yourself in your mind? This is kind of what I mean by papancha. You know, before they even get to you, you're just already on the defense, ready to argue your point, cultivating your story. We, of course, create stories in other ways, too. Stories about people and places and things. These kind of big, magnificent stories that we gather evidence for. Another quick example of this is when I was going through a period of depression you know, my mind would always gather evidence for the reasons why I was always going to feel this way. And I was the only one that felt this way. And um, that was the kind of implicit bias of depression is it had this sense that it was happening to me and it was always going to be happening to me. And once I had a mindfulness practice, it helped to actually just feel the emotional experience of the depression without this added story that would come with it. So when I say proliferation, what I mean is just the tendency of the mind to create a story. The second characteristic of, uh, of these types of thoughts is rumination. And rumination is, of course, these all share similarities, but it's the feedback loop of the thoughts. It's like racing thoughts. So it's the habit of the mind to compulsively focus on the symptoms of our distress and on its possible causes and consequences, right? You ever try to figure out why you're anxious? And then you just keep thinking and obsessing and obsessing over what's causing it and what's causing it and how can I fix it and how can I get rid of it? Meanwhile, what's happening while you're obsessing? You're getting more anxious, right? So rumination is this habit we have to just kind of cycle. It's like doing backflips through your mind. Proliferation is creating a big story and rumination is more about the speed. It's like the obsessiveness and the hook that we get caught in. It's that simple experience of having a thought stuck in your head and you can't stop thinking about it. It's like when you're trying to go to bed and you've got a project or something that you've got to do tomorrow, but you just can't put it out of your head long enough. Meditation, of course, really helps for this and we'll talk about this in a moment, but it really helps us to be able to train our attention to focus on something like the breath so we can momentarily drop out of that cycle. And the good news is, is we actually get better at that ability as we continue to practice. You actually get better at being able to ignore your obsessive mind. 
especially once your mind's told you once or twice what you're afraid of, that's enough really. You know, like sometimes I learn early in my practice just to tell my mind, okay, that's enough. Like, thanks. You've told me already twice why, you know, I'm going to get fired from my job tomorrow. So I think that's all I need for now. You know, that's what I mean by rumination is we just can't get enough of the same story over and over. Fixation. This is the third and final one, which is when a problem becomes magnified. There are really two forms of fixation. There's um, what I call a drama mind, and the other is black and white thinking. So fixation is making mountain, or so, yeah, sorry, um, the drama mind is making mountains out of molehills, right? We get caught up in one small detail. You know, you're going on a date, you put on your purple shirt, you know, you go to your closet, you're like, man, I never wear this shirt. And then you put it on, you're like, yeah, I like this. This is a new look for me. And then you get in your car and then you're like, oh my God, I'm such a dumbass. I can't believe I wore the purple shirt. And you're like, should I go back and change my shirt? And they're going to hate this shirt. You know, where we get kind of like fixated on something that's happening and can't get it out of our mind. Caught up on a small detail, that's fixation. Another form is black and white thinking, which I think is the more common, where we get caught in this kind of all or nothing mentality. You know, it's a reductionistic way of seeing the world. This person's always late. I'm never happy. Winter always sucks. It's always cold here. There's always traffic. You know, this kind of like tendency we have to basically reduce our human experience down to. Uh, moment of aversion, you know, uh, that something is always this way or that way. Um, so these three examples are just, you know, ways of understanding the mind. The mind has a tendency to make stories. It has a tendency to obsess and a tendency to get hyper-focused on what it's obsessing about. So what do we do with this mind that has 50 to 70,000 thoughts a day that has a negativity bias that has these mental habits of story making and obsession and hyper uh, focused, dramatic and black and white thinking. What do we do with all of this? Here's what the Buddha says about the mind. He says, who is your enemy? The mind is your enemy. Who is your friend? The mind is your friend. Learn the ways of the mind tend to the mind with care. So this is really interesting because the Buddha is not placing judgment on the mind. And this is really what I wanted to talk about. The mind can either be your enemy or your friend, he's saying. He's saying, but it really depends upon how you attend to it. Notice that the Buddha doesn't say here that the goal of meditation is to get rid of the mind, that his path is encouraging people somehow to annihilate their mind. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that we should learn the ways of the mind and tend to the mind with care. And we really want to see thinking as just the nature of the mind. We don't want to place any judgments on it as good or bad or right or wrong, but we want to be full of care in what we attend to because what we attend to has a lot of power. And so we have to learn to practice mindfulness, which is an ability to recognize and to observe these thoughts and feelings as they're arising without getting hooked into them. Here's what Saida Utejaniya says about mindfulness. 
He says, if we believe it's better to have few or no thoughts in the mind while you're meditating, then we're likely to resist the thinking whenever the thoughts come. But thinking is just nature. Can we stop nature or avoid nature? No, it's impossible. You need to be able to recognize when the mind is thinking, but not get entangled in what is being thought. There's no need to get caught in the story your thoughts are telling you. There's no need to automatically believe that the story running through your mind is true. And so I see a couple people writing. Tejani is the, he's got the chronic dharma, so I'll put this in the chat here for you. There you go. Um, yeah, I love this. So he says, we don't have to believe that it's our job in meditation to somehow have few or no thoughts in our mind. He's saying what we're trying to do is just to recognize when the mind is thinking and not get entangled in what's being thought, not get entangled in the story. Mindfulness is a practice whereby we can step back and observe the thoughts arising and passing without getting involved in them. And so part of the practice initially, primarily, is to learn how to ignore the thoughts, to see them, but to step out of them. And when we begin a meditation, and even as we continue the meditation practice, one of the core skills of mindfulness is concentration. And concentration, I'll give you a definition, is to find, place, and sustain your attention where you consider to be relevant at a given time. The challenging thing about attention is attention is present in every moment of consciousness. Every moment through the day, your attention is always somewhere. But that your attention tends to follow thoughts, as they found in these studies. So we have to actively cultivate an attention that's more stable. We call the samadhi or collectedness of attention. We have to learn how to train our attention to be more present. We have to train our attention to be where we want it to be instead of where it wants to go. And so beginning in meditation, mindfulness is just recognizing thoughts, as, as uh, Tejaniya said. Um, it's not just recognizing thoughts, but we're talking about thoughts today. It's just recognizing and stepping back and observing them. But concentration is that aspect of mindfulness where after we recognize, we return our attention back to the breath. And we concentrate. We focus the attention and sustain the attention with that object. And through practice, what concentration helps us to do is it helps us to be able to break the addiction to thinking. Like I said earlier, Early in a meditation practice, those moments where the mind is planning something, it's hard to let go of the plan, to actually tell myself I have 20 minutes or 30 minutes where I don't have to plan anything. And so we have to kind of have this commitment, and the Buddha says it at the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, to set aside our desires and discontent for the world and to break our addiction to this thinking. Concentration helps us to do this. It helps us to identify when the thoughts are happening, but to really return our attention back and to tune back into the breath or the sounds or the body. Another thing that this does is concentration supports mindfulness. So you may notice now that I'm saying that concentration and mindfulness are kind of two different things. 
I won't go into detail about this because it can be confusing, but mindfulness, when we talk about it, we're talking about it as a meditation practice. But within the practice, there are really three distinct skills. There's concentration, there's mindfulness, and there's equanimity that's being developed. And so when you're practicing mindfulness meditation, you're actually practicing concentration, mindfulness, and equanimity together. So I'm singling out concentration as this skill where you find your attention, place it where you want, and sustain it. Mindfulness is just the ability to observe whatever's arising and passing, and equanimity is trying to be okay with whatever's arising and passing, letting it happen without suppressing it and without obsessing and indulging in it, just letting it be. So when we're talking about concentration, one of the benefits is it helps us to break out of this obsessive thinking and to focus with a simple object. And over time, that means that we learn to be able to drop out of the discursive thoughts and be more in the present moment. And as you're more attentive to the present moment, your noticings per minute go up. So concentration supports mindfulness. So the more you're attentive to the breath, the more quickly you're going to notice when your attention jumps. Like I said at the end of the meditation practice today, notice the moment when your attention starts to wander from the breath. And you notice the more that you practice deepening your concentration and meditation, your ability to notice, I call it the wobble, where your attention starts to jump, it wants to jump into a thought, you can kind of hang with it and notice that moment. So your noticings per minute go up, your ability to see a little bit quicker when your mind's about to wander. And this is super helpful. So simple example is early in my meditation practice, like I said, I went through this period of depression and there's a lot of uh, insecurity. I was dating people, was not feeling very confident in myself. And my mind would replay these stories about you know, my self-worth and my, my ex and why we broke up and you know the whole, the whole tape that the mind plays. So I would start to notice that with a little bit of meditation practice, I would go there less frequently and I would stay there not as long. And this was, I think, largely due to having better mindfulness and concentration. Concentration enabled me to be more present throughout the day. So I was guarding my mind. I wasn't letting it off the leash all the time. But mindfulness helped me to notice the moments when it did go there and to recognize it without judging it, but then to return back. So they work together, and you don't have to think of them as distinct things. I actually very rarely talk about them as distinct things. Mindfulness as a practice includes both concentration, mindfulness, and equanimity. So mindfulness also helps to uh, break the addiction to thinking because it helps us to discern what's a skillful thought from an unskillful thought. This will be the last thing that I talk about. So mindfulness is said to have an investigative quality to it, but a non-judgmental investigative quality. So what does that mean? What's the difference between discernment and judgment? Judgment is where we take our thoughts personally. So when I'm aware of a thought and I think I'm a bad person for having the thought or I shouldn't be having the thought or the thought's bad or wrong or negative or unwise or whatever it may be, when it comes from a judgmental place, it's me taking it personally. 
But in mindfulness, when we just view thoughts as thoughts and we don't have this kind of like Judeo-Christian moral sense of, you know, what's right and wrong, and we just observe the nature of thoughts, we can see that this thought, when I entertain it, leads to suffering. And this thought, when I entertain it, leads to my welfare and the welfare of others. The Buddha talks about this in a sutta where he says to try to separate your thoughts into two categories. The thoughts that lead towards greed, hatred, and delusion, and the thoughts that lead towards compassion, non-harm, and generosity and goodwill. So we can place our thoughts in these two categories and have discernment. When we're thinking a thought, we can see, we can play the tape through. Well, what happens if I'm lusting at the gym and I let my mind go down that path for 15 minutes? Do I need to judge myself and say, oh, I'm such a bad person because I'm lusting? That's an added layer of suffering. I could just look at the lust itself and say, what happens if I lust for 15 minutes? That's going to be pretty irritating. You know, it's going to cause a lot of uh, uh, unquenched thirst, as the Buddha would call it. So we can practice just seeing the nature of our thoughts. A thought that is resentful. Do I have to then add this story about how I'm a bad person for hating someone? Then I can't ever speak it out loud. Uh Uh-oh, you know, I hate people. I have a violent mind. It's cruel and negative and harsh and judgmental. No, we got to own that shit. All of us have that. And we've got to say, yeah, okay, right now there's resentment in the mind. But then we can investigate. Investigate means look into. We can look into. That's the, the, the word vipassana means to look into to peer clearly into the nature of something. So we look into the thought and we say, what is this? Oh, it's a resentment. And what is it like to let that resentment play out in the mind? I notice it really makes me angry, bitter, critical, defensive, and it's painful. It's painful. I think the Buddha says it's like holding a hot coal So we really have to look into our thoughts with a little bit more interest than just this surface level of right and wrong. We have to really see what they lead to. So a couple tips. When in doubt, do nothing. When a thought arises, it's just a thought. It will pass. I've rarely regretted the thoughts that I have passed on. Right? I frequently regretted the thoughts that I've followed. And this is really helpful, actually. I mean, I know this is more ultimate truth Buddhism, but like, I'm being real. Like, thoughts are just fucking thoughts, you know? And you don't really have much control over them. I have been completely like laying in my bed as a kid and just my mind exploding on me. And I could do nothing about it. But what the Buddha does is he touches the ground and he says, okay, I'm here, mind, you're there. Do your thing, wage your war, and you're going to eventually run out of ammunition. Because as long as I don't pick up the thought or act on the thought or do anything with it, you're going to just burn yourself out. Again, this doesn't, isn't the case all the time, but I think more often than not, when in doubt, do nothing. Just notice the thought as a thought and the thought will eventually pass. Another tip, when in doubt, cultivate skillful thoughts. One of the best things we can do with our mind is to cultivate a mind, as the Buddha says, that is imbued with loving kindness. You know, at the end of the day, 
Mindfulness is great. Being able to see the impermanent, impersonal, unsatisfactory nature of thoughts, that there's no self at the center of it. Some of these more deep kind of dharmic practices is great. But at the end of the day, just be kind. Fill your mind with gratitude and with compassion and with forgiveness and with generosity. And we don't have to worry. Contemplatives don't have to worry as much. If you're actually sitting your ass at the, on the cushion and being curious about your minds, you don't have to worry so much about spiritual bypassing. I think positive thinking is good. I don't think that you should believe necessarily that like just because you think something's going to happen, you're going to get it. I think it's a little bit delusional, but don't worry about it. Just be kind, be generous, be forgiving, be compassionate in your thoughts. And if you can't do it in your thoughts, do it with your behavior. And I still have to do this some days. Some days I'm just fucking tripping and in a negative mood and I'd sit down to do metta and my mind is negative and hateful all day. And then I just have to get out of the house and go help someone. Help someone move, talk to a friend, call someone you haven't talked to in a while and ask them how they're doing. You know, the, the good thing about being in a pandemic is there's plenty of opportunities to check in on your homies and say, you know, how's it going? How are you feeling? How can I help? How can I support you today? Uh, service work is the heroine of ethical activities. There's nothing that will make you feel better quicker than doing something for someone else. It's like the main line spiritual principle. There's nothing better. So... A couple quick tips. When in doubt with thoughts, do nothing. Keep practicing. Keep training your attention to be present and aware at all moments of the day. Don't take your mind personally. And when in doubt, just be kind. Fill your mind with loving thoughts, with grateful thoughts, with forgiving thoughts. So uh, that's what I'm going to try to practice. Now I got to try to practice that. <laughs>